Uh, please open your Bibles to Psalm 12. And that is the, the, the title of this sermon, Human Deception and Flattery Exposed by the Flawless Word of God. Uh, we live in a world of deceptive words and false appearances. Um, even believers, I think at times, underestimate the power that words have. Here, here's a reminder out of Proverbs, just three, three samples of many. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, Proverbs 6.16-19, we're familiar with this. These six things God hates, seven are an abomination to Him. And three on the list of seven have to do with misused words. A lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The image there is as if taking out a two-edged sword and piercing someone physically. The once common childhood chant on the playground, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is not true. Not according to the Scripture and not according to our psalm this morning. Words are not neutral, for death and life are in the power of the tongue. This psalm, Psalm 12, follows right after the psalm that we looked at last week and may be connected uh, some commentators believe that the very ones in Psalm 11, if you remember this, the psalm opened up where, where David says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? That that was spawned by, the, by fear in the counselor's own hearts because of the situation of the kingdom under Saul. And they're saying, flee, flee. And David in that situation does not. And some commentators believe, believe that all those that surrounded David did flee. They simply prompted him to do the very thing they wanted to do and did do. So, so David looks around and he says, where are the godly? Where have they gone? Psalm, this psalm divides into two equal parts. The first part describes the flattery and deceit of the words of wicked people and their arrogance. I think you saw that when the psalm was read to us this morning. And the second part describes the purity of the words of the Lord and his care for his own. Like the preceding psalm, this psalm is a cry out for deliverance. That's why I believe looking at psalms in the summer, just pausing from any other series we're going through and looking at these individual psalms, sort of the Old Testament hymn book, is a very helpful reminder for us as believers as the faithful. What does it look like when people are in trouble and they're struggling with difficulty? It looks like this. Save, O Lord. The heart impulse is one of crying out to God for help. The difference is that in Psalm 11, if you just turn back there, if you have your Scriptures, look at Psalm 11 in verse 1. David spoke in the first person singular. Psalm 11, verse 1. I take refuge... How can you say to my soul, okay, individual, whereas in Psalm 12, he spoke in the first person plural, we, us. Look at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation. 
And just a, a technicality, uh, when you're talking about more than one psalm, it's psalms. And when you're talking about an individual psalm, it is psalm without the S. It's not psalms, 12. By the way, eternity does not hinge on that difference, but, but good, good English grammar does. Okay, so, so Psalm 12, the book of Psalms. Back on track. Evil affects individuals, Psalm 11, and the community, Psalm 12. Evil affects us personally, sometimes unknown to anybody else watching, and evil affects entire groups of people, even civilizations. Notice how the psalmist begins with the plea by stating a specific complaint. And by the way, this serves as a great example for how believers should pray. Or if you find yourself in a situation that is getting worse and worse, this is a divine, divinely prescriptive response. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 12. Save, O Lord. Now he states the specific complaint. For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The first three words are really the heart cry of every child of God who has been hurt by evil or abandoned by others. Both of those hurt. Piercing sword thrusts of words or abandonment. We do not excuse genuine evil, but at the same time, we can remain confident that God is at work for good. Even as Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for what? God meant it for good. So this is that that, that sort of that God awareness, even as we're in the middle of a difficulty. He says this, The faithful have vanished. Who are the faithful? The faithful are those who trust God. This isn't just those who who sort of obey a moral code, but these these are how David explains believers. Their life is characterized by belief in and faithfulness to God. They are covenant keeping people because they believe in God. In contrast, the unfaithful are characterized by evil speech. It's interesting that that is the distinguishing mark of the wicked people in this psalm. What comes out of their mouth? Simply their words. Their unbelief is evidenced by a sustained life of deception, flattery, and double talk. G.K. Chesterton once referred to such as those who speak, quote, easy speeches that comfort cruel men. He says, the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, this could be hyperbole, which is an ex, you know, a, a, a purposeful over-exaggeration. But it may also be David's reality. Somebody told me this one time. People's perception is their reality. Whether it's completely true or not, it's the reality they're living in. It's their perception of how events are touching them. David may not actually be the only one left But to him, this was true. To him, his perception is his reality. Everybody else fled. The Apostle Paul said that on one occasion, and God had to remind him, no, I have many people who fear me in that city. Already in history, 
In the history of the world, there have been places, cities, entire civilizations like the Ninevites where this seemed true, where the faithful had vanished from among the children of man. That was certainly true in the pre-flood civilization. It was also true in Genesis 18. Abraham is surprised to find out what God already knew. And what did God already know? If you follow the narrative through, and and Abraham is making this plea to God to, to spare this city, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities, God already knew there were less than 10 righteous people in those cities. Right? We pick up the story in Genesis 18.32. Abraham says, suppose 10 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Of course, most of us know the events that, that quickly follow, and that is a fiery judgment out of heaven upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Micah made a similar statement in Micah verse, chapter 7, verse 2. Listen to what he says. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. When the prophet Micah looked around, all he saw was, was unhindered violence among every single person and among every, all the peoples that he had known. Isaiah said in Isaiah 57.1, The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. And probably most famously, Elijah said this in 1 Kings 19.14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. Listen to what he says. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1.15 says this, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. No doubt, like these men, you have felt the same way at times in your life. Abandoned, left alone, the only one hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the only one setting up a standard to please God, and you feel completely abandoned even by those closest to you. Let's look at the the problem that David identifies. Look at verse 2. He identifies the problem as lies with flattering lips and a double heart. The word used here for lies is the Hebrew word for deception. It's not just something that is a spoken untruth But the Hebrew word actually captures motive in this description. Worthless, empty of meaning. Most advertising would fall under this category. Empty of meaning and worthless with an attempt to profit from your discontentment. There is a motive involved in putting forward to you particular advertising. Knowing the meaning of the word lies as hollow and worthless will help contrast or make the contrast sort of stand out to us when a few verses later, David is going to talk about the words of the Lord as pure silver, that which is worth something. So you have worthless words compared to God's flawless word. I think it would be helpful for us to remember that those who deceive others actually have hate in their heart. Proverbs 26, 28. Listen to what this says. This is very direct. A lying tongue hates its victims. 
and a flattering mouth works ruin. Words are not neutral. So the first description is lies. Look at the second in verse 2. The second description is the word flattering. And that comes from the Hebrew root to make smooth. The exact translation would sound something like this. Lips of smooth things. Or our own English idiomatic expression, he's a smooth talker. You've heard that before. That is this expression. Somebody who comes in and they are so smooth. And what the psalmist is exposing is the evil motive in the heart of a smooth talker. Flattery appeals to the ego of the listener, but there is a purpose, a hidden purpose in the speaker's heart that is self-centered. This is illustrated with horrific consequence in Proverbs 5. Listen to what, listen to what Proverbs says. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Flattery, smooth, but with a very dark and evil intent. The third description in verse 2 is a double heart. This is an interesting phrase. It literally means a heart and a heart, right? Double heart. There are people who speak with one heart in a, in a particular setting, and in an entirely different setting, they speak with another heart. We are, we are more familiar with the phrase two-faced. In the Old Testament, they call that person two-hearted because your, your face is actually, your mouth is speaking out of the abundance of your heart. Double-heart people say an agreeable or even complimentary thing all the while planning to talk evil about or devise evil against that same person later on. Jesus exposed this double heart, this this a heart and a heart contradiction in Matthew 12, 34. And this is with the religious leaders. He says this, you brood of vipers, right? You pit of snakes. How can you speak good, one heart, when you are evil, another heart and their true heart? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying, you have an evil heart. You have all these religious titles, accomplishments, authority, you have an evil heart and Jesus is calling them to be consistent with the one heart they have. Let them know who you really are and speak the evil that's in your heart. Now, after stating the problem, notice and let's determine to follow the example in David's response. Look at verse three. David allows the problem, the painful experience, the loneliness, the, the abandonment, his reality to shape his prayer. Look at verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? What do you do with difficult people? What do you do when faced with arrogant people? What do you do when you're being flattered what do you do when somebody comes into the church and they're just slippery? The first thing you do is you turn to God and you pray specifically. Probably metaphorical, probably in the, in the similar way that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. But Jesus knew that a, a half-sighted man can still lust. He's talking about 
that, that heart, digging out the root of the problem out of the heart. David prays, cut off all flattering lips. A very, very clear picture. David then asked the Lord to intervene, to act against those who make great boasts, who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? We've seen this in our lifetime. We've seen, and I know, I know innocent until proven guilty, but we have seen people who are clear murderers, who hire elite lawyers to find loopholes in the legal statutes, subtle nuances in grammar, and the fine print. And when all the evidence is stacked against this individual, he only serves a few years or he gets out and he gets the fast lane around justice. This is what David is talking about. This is what he is crying out against, this injustice. As he says in verse 4 of Psalm 12, these people are confident in their mastery of words and feel invincible, in control, and indifferent to truth. So, so how do we respond to that? Well, the faithful cry out, verse 1, Save, O Lord! And then here, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Now, we must pray as David did, and I want us to hear this as a church, because the New Testament is actually going to fill this in a little more and is going to offer further instruction. What do you do when you are surrounded by people like this? I want you to hear the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome about this very danger. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Here's what he says. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Watch out and avoid. Yes, pray to God. But you have a responsibility. You watch out for them. You mark them and you avoid them. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, here's the instruction, have nothing more to do with him. Are we as a church obeying these exhortations? Or are we okay with somebody slandering and gossiping and hurting with one heart and then they come into our living room or here, and with another heart, everything is just fine and good. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus for His church, which is His bride, to obey His Word. Well, the words of the wicked are suddenly and strikingly now contrasted with the words of the Lord. This brings us to the second part. Look at verse 5. God hears His people. These are the words of the Lord. Verse 5, it seems as though now God speaks. He says, because the poor are plundered. Now remember, all he talked about is lies, flattery, and a double heart. But it's having a physical consequence upon the poor. It's actually bringing forth a dire situation. Because the poor are plundered. How are the poor plundered? Because the smooth talker went in and undermined them. And he's he's making them poor because the needy groan. I love I love what the Lord says here. 
I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. Here's, here's what moves God to action. The affliction of his people, the affliction of those who suffer as a consequence of wicked people and their deceptive speech. And don't miss this. This is an answered prayer. Remember, David cried out, Lord, save, O Lord, Lord, cut off all flattering lips. God responds, I will arise now. Even if it's imperceptible to David, here's, here's what faith looks like. When you pray, God is working. God hears our cries. We see this all the way back when, when God's children were in slavery in North Africa. And Scripture says this, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You say, well, that was a long time ago. Hebrews 4.15 says this about our relationship with Jesus Christ as our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look at verse 5. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You long for that? When we gather together to worship, I hope that's what we're doing. We're worshiping in spirit and in truth. We're singing to God. We're singing to one another about God. We're giving to God, not that He needs anything, but it's, but it's an act of worship. We're not only just hearing His words, we plan to respond and act and obey to His words. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. By the way, that place is not here. No matter how much we craft and design and invest, that, that, that eternal Sabbath is not found on this earth. That's why Jesus uses these words. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This echoes Psalm 12, verse 5. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Here's where David's confidence now is placed. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord, because he just spoke. He just said, I will arise. I'm going to respond to this affliction. I'm going to place him in safety. Here's David's expectation. The words of the Lord are pure words. Contrasted with what? The worthless lies and flattery and double-heartedness of the people that are surrounding him. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. These are pure, pure words with no dross. You, O Lord, verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. Keep what? You will keep your words. You will guard us from this generation forever. Do you know that God's speech, God's word has nothing worthless in it? There is no duplicity. He said what he meant, and he is faithful to accomplish it. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. We looked at this in our recent series in verse 17. Jesus, 
said this to the people, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a nyota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why? Because God said what he meant and he's going to fulfill what he said. It is purified seven times. It is a perfect, flawless word. Think about this for a second. Being legal is not the same thing as being pure. You following me? You can buy pure fruit juice, for example, that must only contain a small percentage of actual juice to pass the legal grade. Most often, the only pure juice that you will drink is the stuff you make at your house when you take the actual fruit. The speech of the wicked is not pure. It is worthless, absent of value. Even if there's a small percentage of truth, that kernel of truth, that that truth is only there to deceive you. It is, do you know the most dangerous lie is that which contains the most truth? Because you're going to be more easily persuaded or duped or deceived by it. So they'll use the name Jesus. They'll use the phrase, God told me. They'll say, I saw a vision. They'll say, oh no, this is the way of the Lord. They'll use all the words that you're familiar hearing and taking comfort and confidence in, and then they will slip in the barb. The speech of the wicked is absent of value. In Genesis 3, this stands out. And in Genesis 3, words are the result of life and death. In Genesis 3, we find Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it starts, it doesn't, it doesn't give a, a 23 chapter explanation of what that garden looked like. It could have, but it doesn't. But it's interrupted, this, this scene of perfection is interrupted in Genesis 3 verse 1 when it talks about the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast. He's crooked. He's deceitful. And what he attacks now are the words of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, what's happening? You will begin to doubt the character of God if you begin to doubt the words of God. Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said to the woman, now it's, it's, so he moves from a question of deception to a complete contradiction. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You know what we call that? That's a lie. He moves from smoothing things over with a question and then he sneaks in the blatant contradiction. And basically what Satan in the serpent is saying is, I care for you more than God does. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's intending. Matter of fact, now he's going to accuse God. This is another level. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. See, God's not fair. God's keeping you from something good. You shouldn't trust him because actually he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice what just happened through this deception, through this flattery. He now offers Adam and Eve God-like status. Complete independence without accountability is the lie of Satan. 
These are impure words. Lies with flattering lips and a double heart. You know, Jesus calls out satanic, the, the, the satanic character of religious leaders in John 8. Listen to, how, listen to how direct Jesus is here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So when he speaks a kernel of truth, it's a double heart. It's flattery. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, Jesus asks. That's what lies flattery and double-hearted people do. They sort of make you immune to the truth. They make you offended at the truth. If we speak the truth in love, even from this pulpit, and it sort of zings sometimes, and you're offended, Jesus is saying, because you're listening to the lies of those whose father is the devil. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Then what hope is there when we're surrounded by worthless and deceptive flattery? What hope is there when Adam and Eve do eat the fruit and plunge humanity into eternal darkness? What happens when now we are under the curse of sin? There's a reason Jesus is called the Word. In the beginning was the what? The Word. The fullest expression, the best communication of Himself to the world, and it happens in His Son. Do you know that Jesus is the purest expression of God to us? Have you ever spoke with someone who only ever told you the truth, but did so with kindness because of their unconditional love for you? Or maybe your experience is similar to mine. There's a kind of kindness, but then you hear and it's, verified that with others it wasn't kind and then they seem very friendly to you and like it's so good to see you but then a few days later you hear oh yeah guess who i ran into oh mm, uh. but have you ever spoken with someone who you never doubted their unconditional love for you who they say the same thing to your face that they say when they're sitting with someone else who's your adversary have you ever spoke with someone who only had intentions of good for you not jealousy or comparison or competition. Well, if you've ever seen the Word, Jesus Christ, you have. It is said of the promised Messiah, even in the Old Testament, it says this about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no violence. Oh, but the religious leaders, they're murderers. And in Jesus, there was no deceit in his mouth. Beautiful description of the promised rescuer deliverer. The writer of Hebrews says this in, in Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Literally in the Greek, the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So who is this word, this son, this creator, this pure and final word who God has determined to speak to us through? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. He doesn't just offer life. He is life. He has life inherent in Himself. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In essence, what John is saying is the one I'm about to present and introduce to you is the Creator, God Eternal. God in the flesh. The fall of man was characterized by moral darkness and evil and hatred. The antonyms of light. Jesus Christ comes and the light shines in the darkness. John chapter 1 verse 5. But not everybody responds appropriately to the light. Or they don't appropriate the light. The world did not acknowledge Him. John chapter 1 verse 10. And His own did not welcome Him. John 1 verse 11. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever doubted what God is really like? You have four Gospels that record what God is really like. As He walks among men, as He puts His sandals on in the morning, as He rubs up against the lives of sinners, The God-man lived as a man among men. Literally, he dwelt, he tabernacled, he tented. He wasn't far off in this celestial distance and once in a while made an appearance and left, made an appearance. No, Jesus came and he tabernacled. He built a lodging among us. Why? So we could behold him and see him and know by experience that he is full of grace and full of truth. John chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? The law primarily displays God's demand for holiness and pointed to our failure to keep the law, which, which paved the way for our, our readiness, hopefully, to welcome our Rescuer. So the contrast is not that the Mosaic law is bad and that Jesus is good, but that both the giving of the law and the coming of Christ mark decisive events in salvation history. The law is a tutor. It teaches you, it instructs you to be ready for who? The Word who became flesh and dwelt among you. Jesus exegetes God to man. No one has ever seen God, John 1.18 says. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Christ has made Him known. Let me read you a, a passage we're just going to sort of parachute in, but I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 about this word. He says this, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. There's no double heart with Jesus. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and Jesus is God's ultimate Yes, he always does what he says. Paul continues, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. There is a person in history, an eternal person of God, who when you come to him, there is no flattery, even though there is love. 
There is no double talk, even though there is unconditional acceptance if you are in Him. And when He says yes, it's yes. And it doesn't change later when He's around a different set of people. His yes is yes. God's clearest and purest word to us, this word that is purified seven times, that has no dross but only worth, is Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the last verse in conclusion. Because even though God is at work, and even though He sent His Son to rescue us, a pure and flawless word, it often seems in our experience that things do not change. This is going to be very important. Because this is the last verse. This is how the psalmist ends. And I want you to ask a question when you read this. Let's just read the verse. After all those beautiful things and the confidence that he has in God, David says this, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. That's how the song ends. And we should ask, why does the psalmist go from dark to light and end with dark on the last verse? Did you see that? Dark, incredible light, little sliver of darkness. Do you know that I don't believe David saw an immediate change of his circumstances? Even though he realigned himself with the God awareness, I don't think his circumstances changed. As a matter of fact, if you read the historical books in the Old Testament, sometimes his circumstances got worse. So what do we do if it seems like God is not acting, not judging, not helping the poor, not holding people accountable? One of my favorite quotes by Peter Kreft is this. He says this, People aren't getting away with evil. Justice delayed in God's economy is not necessarily justice denied. There will come a day when God will settle accounts and people will be held responsible for the evil they've perpetrated and the suffering they've caused. Now listen to this part. He says this. Criticizing God for not doing it now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. He is at work. Even though it's imperceptible to you. So what is your response? Save, O Lord. Lord, cut off the lips of these flattering people. Protect your people. You will keep your words. So what can we learn from this psalm and its conclusion before we sing in response to what we've heard? The path, number one, the path of the faithful is surrounded by temporal, though at times severe, difficulties. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. Future tense, you will Guard us, future tense, from this generation and forever. Secondly, David prayed. God was acting, but it seemed to David God didn't change anything. Another quote that I love, attributed to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he said this, Though the mills, those are that, the, 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 the millstones, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small, Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Third, victory is sure. Victory is accomplished even though it is not yet fully realized. There are many exhortations in Scripture to remain faithful, to endure, and to persevere. Number four, we are called to be faithful even when everyone else is not. Five, the wicked say in verse four, we will triumph. Here's the actual ultimate eternal reality. God says, I will rise. Six, 
We need to know that proud people are being resisted right now. James 4, 6 says, But He, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes. This literally is, God is right now actively opposing the proud, but He gives grace. He is right now actively providing grace to the humble. Whether you perceive it or not, God is resisting proud people, maybe incrementally, imperceptibly. And He right now is giving grace to the humble. I'd like to invite our worship team forward at this point, and then I'm going to say one more application. Earlier we sang together the song Living Hope, and that's just it. When surrounded by empty words and the smooth words of flatterers and words that are intended to deceive us, we have hope in Christ alone. Let me read to you the passage out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. That means there's, there's no dross in it. And unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, that's what God is doing, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, save, O Lord. Romans 10.13 says, He will be saved. Let's pray.